0: Thank you. you, may be seated. And we come this morning uh, to hear God's Word and uh, to hear the words of life that He offers. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Jordan, I am one of the assistant uh, pastors here, and um, for those who may not know, we've been uh, starting a series in 1 Thessalonians, we began that series last week, and um, we're continuing that series again this week. Last week we looked at chapter one. Uh, we looked at Paul and his arrival uh, to the city of Thessalonica. We, see, we learned about the church that was planted there, and uh, the story, the testimony of how uh, people came to faith in that city. And now here in chapter 2, Paul is describing what his ministry was like. Um, There were many rumors swirling around about Paul and rumors suggesting that he uh, had impure motives. And Paul is addressing those rumors here in chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there might be one in the seat in front of you. You can grab that and we'll read together Chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. For you know yourselves, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God, in the midst of such conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom in glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out. And displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. While this is uh, the word of, of the Lord, we thank God for it. Why don't we ask God for his help in understanding it? If you would pray with me. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you that, um, that you speak to us, that you are not silent, but that throughout history you have spoken uh, to prophets and apostles, and most of all you have spoken through your Son. We come now, Lord, to listen to your word. We receive it not merely as the word of men, but we receive it as the word of God, and we pray that you would give us understanding. Give us, as we just sung, eyes that would see the truth, ears that would hear the truth, and hearts that would believe the truth. And, Lord, use the truth now uh, to challenge those who are comfortable and to comfort those who have been challenged. We pray so in Jesus' name. Amen. I've uh, been part of this committee in our denomination, and the committee... um, oversees the training of theological students and and candidates and Roughly twice a year uh, some people who want to be men who want to become a a pastor in our denomination they Come to our committee meetings and we interview them and we ask all the hard questions and I usually try and uh, pin them down with the hardest of the questions and One of the questions that I ask is why like why do you want to be a pastor? I mean, contrary to popular opinion, uh, pastors do work more than one day a week. (laughs) People call you at the weirdest hours of the night, and on Monday morning, your inbox is almost always filled with constructive sermon criticism. Why do you want to be a pastor? That's the question I ask them. Some of them have really good jobs. They're making a good income and have a good living. Why do you want to quit that? Why do you want to, to, to come and minister as we do? Well, the year was 51 AD in a city called Thessalonica. Now, as I said last week, Thessalonica is this little city that is located in northern uh, Greece, Macedonia. It is um, west of Istanbul. It is east of Rome. And as I shared with you last week, Paul has come to the city. He spent three weeks in the city and he preached the gospel to the Thessalonians. After that, he was driven out of the city and he never came back. Um, And people were wondering, where did Paul go? Why hasn't he returned? People were asking questions. Is Paul a genuine preacher? Why did he leave us in such a hurry? And... Perhaps people were asking the question, did he abandon us? Why did he even come to our city? What were his motives? Did he even accomplish anything while he was here? Was he just a charlatan? Was he a fake? Was he a fraud? Was he an imposter? There were people throwing stones at Paul. Now, we don't actually know what the exact criticisms were. And we're never told that. Um, but we do know what Paul's defense was. And he gives a defense for his ministry here in chapter 2. And throughout the, ta- the, the chapter, he tells us, well, this is what I was like when I was in Thessalonica. This is how I conducted myself. This is what my ministry was like. And he tells us um, several things in this chapter, but I think I've boiled it down to four words that describe his ministry among the Thessalonians. Or the Thessalonians, rather. Um, boldness, faithfulness, gentleness, and thankfulness. Boldness, faithfulness, gentleness, and thankfulness. Those are the, the words that characterize his ministry among the Thessalonians. Let's, if you have your Bible in front of you, let's uh, study it together. Look at verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, we see that, um, especially in verse 2, that he had boldness in his God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of of much conflict paul was bold he was bold not in like a a brash kind of way he was bold not in a reckless kind of way look at verse one he had boldness in god what is boldness boldness is doing the right thing irrespective of the consequences and paul made it his aim to do the right thing to say the right thing in spite of the consequences. If you grew up uh, with stories of the, the Bible, you might remember stories like David and Goliath, or um, Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are stories of believers who were bold. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were, they were taken uh, to live in exile. They were forced to stand before a golden idol. And the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, instructed them to bow down to that idol under the threat of death. And what would happen if they didn't? They would get thrown into the fiery furnace. So, what did they do? They were bold. They did the right thing irrespective of the consequences. They did not stand, or they did not bow. And because of that, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Think of Daniel. Daniel was instructed not to pray. But he boldly did the right thing in spite, irrespective of the consequences. And he was thrown into the lion's den. Paul, when he arrived to Thessalonica, was bold. He was, and, and he knew what he was getting himself into, right? He wasn't naive. He had experienced it before. He had experienced it in Philippi. He had been whipped. He had been beaten. He had been thrown into prison. He knew from experience that every time he opened his mouth, every time he tried to preach the gospel to people, what would happen? He would get arrested. He would get harmed. He would get thrown in prison. And as he arrives in Thessalonica, we see he arrives boldly. He knows what the consequences are going to be. And the consequences happen. He receives death threats. He receives an angry mob is formed and chases him out of the city. So there were many negative consequences um, for the, the work that he did, but there were also many positive consequences as well, weren't there? A church was planted among the Thessalonians. Lost people, confused people, struggling people, hopeless people, They became followers in Jesus. They found hope. So, even though um, Paul went through so many difficult things in places like Philippi and Thessalonica, even though he had been whipped and beaten and thrown in prison, he can still say, look at verse 1, that it was all worth it, that it wasn't in vain. Because Jesus was preached and the church was established. He was bold he also had a goal and this is this is my second point his goal was faithfulness his goal was not to live um, a comfortable stress-free life his goal was not to have you know the perfect work-life balance his goal was not to have the beach house his goal was not to live this um, extravagant life of ease He spent much of his time on the road in a prison cell, where in a prison cell he experienced beatings, he experienced whippings, hot days and cold nights. His life was exactly the opposite of the perfect work-life balance, right? What was his goal? Was his goal to get rich? No, obviously not. Uh, Paul went from place to place living off of the smell of an oily rag. He did not get a salary for what he did, nor did he ask for a salary. But instead, he worked two full-time jobs. We know he was a preacher, right? What else was he? What else did he do? Tent maker. He spent his days working with leather, stretching leather out, cutting leather, putting it together, creating tents. And then what did he do? He took the money to uh, fund his ministry. Now, that's not to suggest that you should make your pastors work two full-time jobs. (laughs) I'm not going to go work at Bunnings or Mecca's. But he worked hard, didn't he? And verse 9, look at verse 9. It tells us that he worked hard. He says, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, my toil and hardship when I was with you. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. And then he also says previously that even though he was apostle, he, an apostle, he could have made a request. He could have asked for money, but he didn't. Why? Because he knew the needs of this church. He knew that they were small. He knew that they were struggling. And so instead of taking from them, he chose to give to them to give of himself, to give of his life, to give of his money and his resources and his time. He didn't want money, and he didn't want the Thessalonians to feel the burden of supporting him. That was the kind of guy he was. That was his character. So so when rumors were swirling up in, in places like Thessalonica about him, suggesting that he was greedy, he had to clear those rumors up. No, I'm not driven by greed. I'm not driven by uh, the love of money. I never took from the church. I only gave to the church. So his goal was not, you know, to live uh, a life of comfort. His goal was not to live a a rich life. His goal was not to get famous either. Uh, Some of you might be old enough to remember a man named Jim Baker. And um, Jim Baker was arrested... on November 16th 1992 and he was a a man who called himself a Christian pastor and He was arrested for crimes of embezzlement and um, and misusing uh, church funds Someone called him and this is pretty horrible, but someone called him the greatest scab on the face of Christianity in 2000 years of history The reason they said that is because he he misused his office in order to get rich and famous instead of giving to the work of the gospel what did he do he stole from the church he stole from God's people he used the church as a platform to build an empire where he sat as king and that's just one story there are hundreds thousands more but Paul was not a Jim Baker Paul was not in it for the money. He was not in it for the fame. He was not in it um, either to, to please people, to be flattered by people. Look at verse 4. We are told that his goal is not people-pleasing in verse 4. His sermons did not tickle ears. They did not scratch itchy ears. He didn't you know, dress the message up. He didn't leave parts of the message out. He didn't uh, tinker with the truth to make it more palpable, to make it more appealing to people. How did Paul preach? He simply opened up the Bible. He gave them the Scriptures. He taught the truth and nothing but the truth and only the truth. How important is that? You know, as a congregation, you should actually expect that of your ministers. You should expect that on Sunday morning when you come here to Donville, that you will get the truth. And nothing but the truth you expect that of your doctors don't you you go to the doctor you expect that your doctor is going to give you the truth imagine you go to your doctor and um, and your doctor runs a bunch of tests on you and thinks to himself ooh asthma I don't want to tell her that she has asthma and so you go into the office and the doctor says everything's okay you have asthma. No. We, we expect our doctors to tell us the truth. We expect our politicians to tell us the truth. I hear some snickers. <laughs> I sometimes feel bad for the politicians, Christian politicians. But, uh, but there is that reputation. Uh, many politicians, not all of them, but many politicians make promises that they can't keep. Te- they can't keep. We expect that these people will be trustworthy and tell us the truth. Paul was committed to the truth. To teach the truth and nothing but the truth and the whole truth. And the reason we are told in verse 4 is why? Because he wanted to, not to please people, but he wanted to please God. Fancy that. Paul's aim was to please God through his preaching. You know, sometimes, there, well, there are multiple pastors here in the room, and that's one of the blessings that we have at Donvale, and perhaps ministers, fellow ministers, can relate to this. Often in our sermon preparation, there's a temptation to spend too much time thinking about the people whom we are preaching. We wonder if people will think that, you know, the sermon is boring we're afraid that they might fall asleep in the sermon. We fear that our sermons will be too long or too short. There might be too many stories, there might not there might be not enough illustrations. That's a real temptation that pastors have. Sometimes we fear people, you know. There are there are seasoned ministers in the room that I get to preach to and And I think, you know, they've had 40 years, 50 years of pastoral experience. Now, what are they going to think about my sermon? But you know what Paul said? Your preaching is for one person. It's for God. Your aim is to please the Lord. Look at verse 4. He says, I speak and I make it my aim to please God. God's opinion matters most. So I need to ask myself, well, not, not what do people think about my preaching, but rather what does God think? Does God approve of it? When I get into the pulpit, is what does He have to say about the things that I have to say? Can I with a clearer conscience say that in, in my preaching I gave the church the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And you see here throughout the passage that Paul says, yes, he can, with a clear conscience, say, yes, I did that. His sermons weren't perfect, but he said, God is my witness. I, I gave them the truth. And that's what you should be looking for in a church. That's You should be holding your elders and your ministers accountable to that end to um, pull us up. If there's ever anything in the pulpit that is untrue, and if I can just, just you know, digress for a second, this is, not, you know, this is not just something that pastors need to think about. I want you to think about it too. Whose opinion matters most to you? Your wife's opinion? Your coworker's opinion? Your mate's opinion? Are you concerned? Are you overly concerned, consumed even, with what other people think of you? We can all learn from the life of Paul. This is a great temptation in the church to overvalue the opinion of others and to undervalue the opinion of God. I think it's a problem that we as Christians face today that we are overly concerned with the opinions of others and not concerned enough with God's opinion. Yeah, I just explained how pastors experience this all the time. What will people think of me? Well, what will they think of the session? What will they think of the church? Employees have this. What will my coworkers think of me if they know I'm a Christian? I'm going to hide that. I'm not going to share that information because I'm afraid that they'll reject me. What about your friends? They're using this language. Whew, I better use that language because they might think that I'm no fun. What about society? What will society think of us? What will society think of the church? What will society think of a church that that believes that that marriage is between a man and a woman? What will society think? And we fear the opinions of other people. And we don't fear the opinions of God. That's a dangerous place to be. Friends, at, at the end of the day, guess who we answer to? When all is said and done, when we come before our God and maker, who do we answer to? We answer to him. We don't answer to our mates. We don't answer to the, you know, football club. We answer to God. That's where the apostle Paul stood. His goal was to have a ministry that pleased God. Did he do it perfectly? No. He was both sinner and saint. He was a believer who had his own struggles. He was forgiven by God, but his desire, the God-given desire of his heart, was I am going to, I am going to work to please God through my ministry. What else can we say about Paul? So he was bold. He was faithful. He was gentle. Was he brash? Was he rude? Was he domineering? No, he was gentle. And we see in verse 6, you can see that, that Paul could have used, he could have made demands of people, he could have used his position to pull rank, right? But he didn't do that. He conducted himself in a gentle way. I um, was recently listening to this podcast, Um, I I actually don't recommend this podcast because it didn't, I didn't come away feeling uh, like it helped me or encouraged my faith, but it was in some ways useful to listen to because the podcast offers a warning to pastors. The podcast is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and it's about the ministry of a man named Mark Driscoll. And he used his position as a weapon, as a means to control and dominate people. I mean, in in one sermon he jokingly said, there's a pile of dead bodies behind our church and it will be a mountain by the time I'm done. So either you get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Uh, That's spiritual abuse. And leaders, church leaders, should not conduct themselves in that way. That's not the kind of ministry that Paul was interested in. We see that the Apostle Paul loved people. Look at verse 7. No, we were gentle among you. Uh, Like nursing mothers taking care of their children. You see, he considered the church his family, right? Paul didn't have a family. He had a mother and a father. We don't know anything about them. He may have had siblings. We don't know anything about them. Was he married? Well, if he was ever married, his wife had probably died because we know when he writes his epistles that he's single. Does he have any children? Likely not. So who was his family? The church was his family do you know how many people in our church don't have family this is their family these are the people whom they love and the bible one of the the most common metaphors for the church in the new testament is what that they are a family that they have a connection that is that is closer than any other worldly connection the church had become paul's family and he describes himself here look at verse 7. He, he, he says he was like a mother. Not because he identified as a woman. <laughs> but because he had the characteristics of a mother in the sense that he, he cared about nurturing people. He cared about feeding people. He cared about um, like a mother, mother-like. He, um, he assisted this congregation. When this was a little baby church, the Church of Thessalonica... He fed them with God's word and nourished them and helped them grow like a mother. And then verse 9, he says he was like a brother. Right? He labored with them. He worked with them. He fought with them. He had their back. If you have a brother, I mean, some of you may have really good relationships with your brothers. There's that saying, you know, that blood is thicker than water, right? You, you always have your brother's back no matter what. And Paul said that these, he was like a brother to them, and that they were like his brothers and sisters. And so there was kind of a loyalty to them. And then look at verse 11. He says, I was like a father to you. I exhorted you, each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom in glory. He was like a father to them. He led them. He trained them. Um... And and they became imitators of him. They watched his example, just like a, a child watches the example of his father. So members of the church watch the examples of, watch the example of Paul. Yeah, of his son. And he copies everything I do. He does his hair the same way. He likes to dress up the same way. He's about as hyper as I am. He doesn't want to be a pastor. He wants to be an accountant. Who wants to be an accountant? (laughs) I don't know. This is a strange thing for a child to want to become an accountant, but I'm sure one day he'll make a good accountant. He imitates me. What you'll notice throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians is that there's this language of imitation. It appears here in chapter 2. It also appeared in chapter 1. Paul exhorts um, members of this congregation to imitate his way of life so that um, he would live as an example and that they would follow his example. And I think there's something to be said here for us, that um, we can see the mature Christians in our congregation as an example to younger Christians. And that's why we don't split up our services into different generations or age brackets. That's why when you come to the, that's why we don't call the 830 service the the senior service and the ten thirty service the young family service and the six thirty service the young adult service. We don't do that because we we think it is very important to have all Christians of all ages together in one place. Why? because we observe the examples of older, more seasoned, mature Christians. They're like fathers and mothers in the faith. And as we watch their examples, we see actively a living example of what it means to live the Christian life. And so, you know, if you're over 50, God has a good purpose for you. He has a mission for you. And his mission and his calling for you is to to be that example to a younger generation. That that you uh, would model the gospel for them. And for those who are under 50, we have an important responsibility to observe, to consider to watch the example of those who have gone before us and to embrace that example as a way of life. And so you see that here. Paul didn't just teach them. Paul didn't just you know, come to church on Sunday morning, give his sermon, and then leave just to go off golfing for the next six days. No, he lived as an example among them. He ministered among them. So what can we say about Paul? We can say that he was bold, we can say that he was faithful, and we can say that he was gentle. Finally, we can say that he was thankful, and I want you to look at verses 13 to 16. And I'm not able to say everything that there is to say about these final verses, but I do want to point to your attention verse 13. Verse 13 says, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Paul is thankful for this little church. He cares about this little church. He's mindful that it's a struggling church. He thanks God for its, its existence, and, existence. And most of all, what is he thankful for? He's thankful that they have received the word of God and that they have embraced the word of God and that they are living according to the word of God. He's thankful that this little church has become a place of truth in a world of darkness. Now, what do you know about the Roman Empire? The Roman Empire was a very dark place. It was a place filled with superstition and witchcraft and unbelief and paganism. A place where sex was sold and commodified. It was a place where murder and infidelity were common. That's Rome. And Paul is thankful that there is a little beacon of light in the heart of the Roman Empire. A little place where a small group of people have embraced the truth of the gospel who believe it and are living according to it. They received the word of God, we're told. Not as a, merely a historical document, not as a, a jumbled collection of poems and stories, right? They received the word of God, look at verse 13, as God's own word, his own voice. And so if you think about it, what Paul is saying here is he's saying In the heart of the Roman Empire, God has spoken, and God is still speaking. And because God is speaking to that place and to those people in the heart of the Roman Empire, light has shone. This little church is is hearing the voice of God in the heart of darkness. And the church itself became a light in that dark place. Look at verse 14. Now I'll summarize, I won't explain verse 14 and 15, but I'll summarize it. The darkness tried to snuff out that light. As this little church began to grow and flourish, what happened? Persecution. People came knocking on the doors of Christians and dragging them away. Christians were um, mocked, perhaps beaten. Their family members said, no, I want nothing to do with you because You've 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 left the faith of your youth. Their fellow countrymen were told, "Attack them." The Jewish religious authorities had attacked them for their faith, and they underwent massive persecution. We know what the persecution was like in other places. We don't know a lot about the persecution in Thessalonica, but we know the persecution in Rome meant that Christians were dragged out of their homes and thrown uh, into the Colosseum, where they had to fight. Wild animals. That's the kind of persecution that people endured in that day. You recognize also that people still endure this kind of persecution today. We live in a little bubble here, don't we, in the Western world? And sometimes, occasionally, we hear these reports of people dying for their faith in far-off lands. We need to be praying for those people, mindful of those people. But we know that Paul, Paul's work, in spite of all that persecution, was not done in vain. That's what verse 1 says. The church grew, and in the darkness the light began to shine. And in this hopeless world, um, a place of hope was established. So that's Paul. What was Paul like as a pastor? He was bold. He did the right thing, despite the consequences. He was faithful. His goal was to please God, not men. He was gentle. He treated the Thessalonians as he would treat his own family. And he was thankful, even in the most difficult of circumstances. That's, the t- that's what this passage tells us. But here's my last question. What motivated him? Well, we're told it wasn't money, it wasn't fame, it wasn't success, it wasn't power. What was it? He was motivated by the gospel. He understood that he was a wretched sinner, that Christ was a perfect Savior, and that Jesus alone could forgive him. He was motivated, and because of that truth, he was motivated to bring good news to dark places. Now, I've spent probably 25 minutes talking about Paul. What about you? Why are you here? Is it because I invited you? Is it because your friends invited you? Is it because of a baptism? Yes, that's part of it. Is it because Dad used to go to church and now I'm going to go to church? Is it because you're looking for answers? Why are you here this morning? What motivates you to be here? I mean, you have two days on the weekend where you get to sleep in. And you've chosen to come to church this morning. I mean, you didn't come to the 8.30 service. You did get a bit of a sleep in. They were really dedicated. You came to the 10.30 service. But what what motivates you to be here? What motivated Paul to take the gospel to dark places? What motivates the North Koreans to meet together under the cover of night, and to just pray and worship together. What motivates the conversations we have with people? Well, it's the gospel, isn't it? It's the good news that we've been forgiven in Christ, that He's changed our hearts and changed our lives, that He died for our sins and rose again, and that His Spirit is powerfully at work within us, that He promises, promises us eternal life. That's what motivates us, right? That's why we're here. That's what compels us. And isn't that what drives you to live as followers of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray that you would do a good work in our hearts, that the word we might, that we have heard might stick, even if it's just one or two things from this word. May you use your word to encourage us, to challenge us, to change us, and most of all, to help us live as followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, as I prayed earlier, may you use it to comfort those who struggle, and may you use it to challenge those who are comfortable. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.